Hello, welcome to Pod 49. This is a special edition, actually a very special edition, as we were able to talk to Peter Akko and Jim Gavin, the creators, showrunners, uh, executive producers, the overall creative leadership of uh, Lodge 49. And it was, they spent an hour with us, which kind of blew my mind. Bart, any thoughts? Get ready, people ready to listen? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I was kind of shocked by that, too. I think I was kind of expecting it to be about a half an hour, but it kind of slowed very easily, I thought. Um, yeah, I was, I was a little bit nervous about talking to the show creators, um, but I thought it flowed really well and easy. They were very easy to talk to. Um, we, obviously, everybody has enthusiasm for the show. Um, but, yeah, that was, for me, it was just, um, I was kind of, Pleasantly surprised at how easy the conversation was. Right coming up after we stop talking, you'll hear our interview. We talk about a wide range of topics about how the show came to be, what might be the future of the show, some of the creative elements and, and general influences and the stories behind the story. So here's our interview with Peter Akko and Jim Gavin on Pod 49. Well, well, we'll go ahead and get started. I know we don't have a ton of time with you. And we, one, we're deeply grateful. Thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. We were beside ourselves excited when uh, the AMC team said, would you be interested in Jim and Peter conversation? And we said very much yes. So thank you for, for offering your time. Well, honestly, thank you guys for caring about the show. Uh, and I, I say for Jim and I both, um, it means a great deal to us. And, uh, you know, um, we really appreciate it. Well, you made it very easy for us to love the show. So that's no problem on our part. <laughs> Yeah, and we 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 both been sort of evangelizing it in our uh, friend groups and stuff. And then I was like, you know, no one. And I'm a big fan of kind of uh, TV episode podcasts, and so I looked for one. They just didn't exist. So I said, this looks like an opportunity for us to do something fun. So we're glad that it, it's resonating. Now, yeah, let's jump into it. Um, okay. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, and, and the, uh, the fact that uh, you want, there's there's like a, for me anyway, I kind of want to talk to people about it, and a lot of people haven't heard of it, or don't, it's hard to describe, and so it's been kind of somewhat frustrating on some levels, and so the podcast has been an area where we can kind of like wax about it and kind of get that out a little bit, because it's really just, you know, the three, I mean, we have a couple other friends that are into it, but um, yeah, it's nice to have an outlet for us as well. And we feel less alone. Um, yeah. It's been great. <laughs> Connect to the community. Let's just uh, no, I was just going to say we've you know we've we've been waiting for the conversation to begin. You know, first season was very slow, and you know I think you know we we had always hoped there'd be this place where people would come together. I think we we kind of assumed AMC might be the place to set up that kind of like safe place to come talk about a show you like. Um, as it turns out, you guys have become the prime you know meeting place for fans of the show, which was which is the way it should be. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's wonderful to hear these conversations because, you know, the intent was always to create something that people would want to, to talk about with each other, you know, and um, it's nice to see this uh, happening. It has been totally fun to connect with, with others. Um, and, and it feels, and I agree, it feels very much in spirit of the show. So um, it's a nice kind of like, fans connecting that way. feels like part of the, part of the reason the show exists. Which just transitioned me into sort of our first question. Can you can you both walk us through a little bit about how this show came into existence and, and how we are sitting here at the end of a really, truly magnificent, amazing season of television with, with season two? Kind of just tell us, you know, how, what brought the Lodge into existence? Uh, this is Jim. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I was uh, sort of floundering in life in many, many ways. <laughs> I'd written a book and I was looking for teaching work and uh, was having no luck. Um, someone encouraged me to, you know, write uh, a pilot. And there was a certain, you know, this is about five years ago where, you know, you know, the, the opportunities I think were multiplying for TV as far as um, different voices and stuff. So I went off and wrote something that a story that I'd wanted to write for a while for several reasons, but I thought that TV was the place to do it. Um, and I, I wrote it as a writing sample, really. I was just hoping to get a job staff somewhere or something, uh, which seemed like a very far away dream. Um, and through just a series of flukes, it kind of just kept going forward till it reached AMC and a couple of people here, uh, Rafi Roosechild and uh, Susie Fitzgerald really loved it and were champions of the show. They're the only people in town who had any interest. And um, then it's, it was a two-year, you know, in the development process, threading the needle in all these ways. I mean, shows can die in a million different ways, and somehow ours kept going. And eventually I got paired up with Peter, who I have no TV experience. Peter has uh, a what is it, 1956 he's been, been in the past. <laughs> um, he was on the show of shows and uh, <laughs> um, yeah and uh, that was that was the kind of moment where I think it became more uh, it transformed from a pilot to a television show where we we were creating an entire world uh, together and um, yeah then it was yeah then it was just the normal thing of the we had a room, we hired some great writers, we we wrote five scripts, and then off of that, AMC, uh, you know, sent us to series, and, you know, we went from there, and I got to say that we're, you know, we've totally, the one thing I can say about the show is we've done exactly what we wanted to do. Uh, AMC kind of, <laughs> it's a double-edged sword, because they, they kind of just uh, let us go do our thing and play, play in our little world. Um, I don't know if they exactly know what we're up to or whatever, but uh, and creatively, it's 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 a dream. So that's from my point of view. I don't know yeah, you know, I mean, my point of view is I've I've done all kinds of shows uh, in like three decades of being in television, and you know, I've done shows that you can summarize in ten seconds, and everyone's like, "Yeah, make that show. Everyone will watch it." And I've done shows that are harder to describe, you know, pushing daisies or. Um, you know, leftovers, but I, I felt when I read Jim's pilot, I had, I hadn't worked with AMC before and I, I knew immediately like, well, I don't know how this is a TV show necessarily, but I felt so connected to the characters and I wanted to be in that place after I finished reading a script. I, I thought to myself, if we could make a show that made you feel like you feel when you finish reading this pilot, which is just kind of happy to be in a place with people you like. I mean, as its simplest form, um, I thought, you know, it was a real challenge, but it was one that I thought if we could pull off would be, would be really great. It would be really wonderful to do that. And I, I mean, for me, and I think Jim and I share this case, you know, I, I come out of a world where I grew up with a lot where television kept me company. Um, you know, shows like Cheers come to mind. There's things where you would, you know, they call us a hangout comedy, which I hadn't really heard before. But that idea that you, you know, you live in a world with, that's essentially a comedic universe 
so, you know, to me, that means there's an absurdity to the powers that be that control what happens. But it's a basically positive place. And um, so when I read it, I, you know, Jim and I met for the first time and kind of sniffed each other out. And it's turned out to be a really wonderful partnership between us because I think you know, we're both kind of driven to put something out there that means something to people. And, um, and I don't know, that's just been, for us, we kept coming back to the word joyride. And um, that's that's what we're trying to do. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, Chris and I were uh, chatting back and forth, like, through text messages about the show. He was the one who recommended it to me. And, you know, after, I guess, you know, a bunch of texts back and forth, he said, uh, I want a lodge. And, you know, and I just, and I said, yeah, me too, you know, and, um, we used to hang out at a bar together and that's no longer there. It's New York city and it's a changing landscape constantly. And so, yeah, we both kind of lamenting about the idea that there was, didn't feel like we had a lodge in our life anymore. I think that's a big, why it appealed to us from the get go as well. When you really do get that sense, that feeling, I mean, you know, you can feel the lodge. You can you can touch the lodge. You can smell it. I, as a viewer, it's, just, it's always been very uh, apparent to me as a fan of the show. Yeah, and I would say that just in the writing of it, for me, I I I was trying to fulfill a longing that that sounds very familiar to me. Um, I do sense that though we're connected in amazing new ways. I think we're disconnected and kind of terrifying new ways um and yeah the uh the lodge itself is the kind of answer to that i think was always at the heart of the show yeah i mean tim and i were looking for a place to eat lunch the other day and we walked into a you know a quote-unquote irish pub and every square inch of the walls was right out of the show we were, were, were big screen tvs and it's basically what it's saying to people is when you get together people are boring so we're doing this other stuff to keep you interested and i i think Jim and I feel the opposite, essentially. Well, yeah, it's like an airport terminal, right? I mean, there's like a little booth for every single person. You're in a shared space, but you're, you know, individualized, which I guess some people find appealing. No, I know. I mean, I can't tell you how sad it is to be in a booth with your kids and just be looking over their shoulder at a football game as you all eat bird. You know, like that, that's where we're at. Yeah, it's not enough to have it in your pocket, but then it's everywhere you go as well. Uh, now I'm feeling guilty for peeking at the football game, but um, <laughs> what um, so the the world building on the show is something that I find amazing, and I think really has been a kind of it's really manifests itself in season two, you know, because whether it's the lodge, whether it's these the, the different set locations, but also this sort of metaphysical world that you're building and these different layers and how they intersect with each other, um, you know, it's it's we don't normally think of world be- world building in shows that are set in modern times and in, you know, it, cities like Long Beach or kind of anywhere USA, but you're doing as much world building as any of your sort of big budget fantasy shows or these other kind of mystery box shows. What's, what's been your motivation to, to be this intricate with the world building um, on a show that, you know, essentially is about modern times? Uh, that's a great question. I think, I mean, a couple of things. I think from the before we got into production, I think uh, there's kind of just a set of uh, reference points and almost moods and places that, you know, in the writer's room, we would talk about um, 
you know, certain types of writers, certain like uh, certain museums and just kind of uh, places that had a very distinct feeling to it um, and kind of integrating some the strange with the mundane, I think was like the, the driving sense of it. And I think these uh, fraternal lodges are that essentially they are, they are dusty places and, but there is a, there is an undercurrent of the strange and the occult that lives side by side. You know, like you have, uh, you know, a pancake breakfast next to um, some allegorical painting, you know, and that's, that's a real thing that's existed in all these places for, you know, centuries. Um, and, you know, we, as far as like, I mean, I can get into specific references, but we, we took all that. And one of our great, our secret weapon on the show is our production designer, Michael Shaw, who is, I think, a bona fide genius. Like he, he has to know everything. He has to know architecture, construction, cultural history, interior design, <laughs> everything. And he, what he gets is he just gets the balance between a place that feels real, but there's an intimation of some of a larger, crazier story. And I can tell you that the first time I walked into the dress lodge set, I burst into tears because I couldn't believe what I was seeing and where I was standing. And everything is there for a reason. We, we try and do that in the writing. And Michael Shaw does that in the production design, the physical world of the show. And that includes our art department, um, which is amazing. And every, every artifact of the show, there's so much care put into it. And every artifact tells a story and adds to a story. So um, that for someone who is totally unfamiliar with TV, that was maybe the most enchanting enthralling part of getting to do this was watching an idea become a reality. Yeah, no. And I, I would add to that too, that one, one, something that gave us license to sort of world build in what you, as you described is like the real world was to make it a series. We decided to create a fable and, you know, for us, it was the knight and the squire, the dying King, you know, it, the luminous night, all these things that, that lent themselves to the, you know, the apocryphal mythology of a, of a local lodge, but also it allowed, it allowed us to build out the world. You know, it allowed us to create the kingdom of Long Beach rather than just think of it as Long Beach. And I think we, we look through that lens every time we create a world or we even, you know, as we create characters, we assign them their, their mythological, um, you know, representative in our story. And, it's really helped us to break stories. It's helped us to see it as a series. It, it also allowed us to kind of enjoy this world building and, and like I say, you know, take license where we need to so that it creates more of a timeless space instead of like, oh, we're in, we're in Long Beach in 2019. That's uh, really uh, interesting. Let me ask you, so did you guys, do you find that when, that you kind of can sort of build the story around um, his uh, building of the set? Does that lead to inspiration towards where the story is headed? Or do you already have the story kind of in mind and then he just is able to bring it to life? You know, we, you know, the, our first season we wrote all, we had all 10 scripts before we went into production, before we built the set. So we do let the story drive everything. Uh, season two, you know, we kind of know 
what our standing sets are and we do build around that and you have to schedule and yeah we in the grand scheme of things we don't have a big budget but i think we get the most out of it i think we over deliver for sure um and the sets are so great that it's fun to kind of play with them and, and figure out ways to uh, move through them and, and take advantage of them, uh, especially the lodge set. Um, yeah, I think sometimes you know, like we, like Jim says, you know, we we have limitations budget-wise, and they usually help us out. You know, or they just guide. You never know for sure whether you're going to end up with a you know a set you're building or a location you find. You know, we have our build sets, but every every season poses new challenges and. Um, sometimes you, you know, you stumble on a place and, you know, that does, I can think of one example where we did see a place, we saw a factory, (laughs) not to give it out, uh, not to give up our illusion here that it's all shot in Long Beach, but we found a factory, a deserted factory in Atlanta that was so tremendous, so huge. It it used to make all the copper wire for AT&T. So this, this thing had, you know, multiple football fields enclosed inside and we'd seen it as a location, and that, for us, gave us some real direction for an Orbis story and, and to kind of let that world be bigger. Um, and that, you know, you sort of see a lot of it per season. But that was definitely an example where, like, you know, we found a place and thought, let's let's use this as best we can. So Orbis, the set, is an actual abandoned warehouse where there was a uh, a, a a manufacturing plant that was employing a big chunk of the town, just like it is in the story? Yes. Yep. <laughs> there, it's amazing. And sad. <laughs> no, it, it was. I mean, it kind of moved us to be in there because it's awe-inspiring. You see what it wants. You talk about walking through, you know, the deserted grandeur. Um, it really was echoing the show in so many ways. Now they now they shoot Marvel movies there. So that's the future. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's the new that's that's Atlanta's new industry town, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, as the the various walkthroughs of Tyler Perry's new studio taught me this week. Um, <laughs> have you visited Tyler Perry's new studio? Uh, I haven't. No, not yet. I hear. I, I apparently it's amazing. Um, one thing that I've noticed, and, and maybe this is just from just how accessible and awesome a lot of your crew and cast, because I really think it's both those folks that interact with people on Twitter or social media and other ways feel really close to the fandom. And that's awesome. But what is also communicated through that is how much love it seems the crew and the cast have for each other and about making this television show. It almost, and I mean, this may sound a little saccharine, but it almost feels like some of that lodge you know, the, the sort of lodge of the mind and, and practice has been rebuilt in actually shooting the show. And you can really feel it emanating from not only the cast, but there's so many of the crew that, that sort of become more vocal or you just referenced one and the music direction is so amazing. It feels, it feels almost like the show itself has built that fellowship and community around making it, which I'm sure most shows have to some degree because everyone's in the battle together, but this one feels this one feels more, it feels like more of that spirit imbibes the, the creators. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that accurate, or what's it like to actually work uh, on that set? Well, I mean, once again, uh, I had no previous experience. and But the thing I gather is that I am about as spoiled as one can be <laughs> to be doing this. Um, I, a, a couple of things were 
to our advantage. One, we took over uh, these stages and a lot of the kind of crew and machinery that was in place for Home Catch Fire. And there was a lot of goodwill, like our show, on that show. Like, it was a great place to work. Um, the guys who created that show, uh, Chris Cantwell and Chris Rogers, are amazing guys. And the kind of line producer man on the ground there, Jeff Freilich, uh, is now works with us. And he he's an amazing guy. He's done everything in this industry. And um, people love working for him. So we, we had a lot of in our favor when we arrived. Um, the other thing is, I think the main thing is that, you know, if the person at the top is an asshole, it trickles down. Peter, I know Peter is an asshole in private, but he really puts on a good show. And so his kind of leadership at the top, it's a place to, it's a great place to work, I hope. And, you know, the, the nature of the show is a joyride. We want it to be as joyful as possible to make. It's grueling in many ways, and we have bad days, etc. But, you know, the investment of the crew and everyone in it and our cast, the other thing is our cast are some of the most lovely people on earth. Yeah. And um, our, you know, they would think of themselves as part of the crew in a way, like I truly. And um, so all these things go into a really, I think, special mood. Um, but if Peter can talk about more. No, no, I, w- I would just say I've done my best to hide from Jim how miserable most of television production is. Um <laughs> And it's, you know, I'd love to take credit for it. I certainly have learned from other people's mistakes and, and, and set out to create a place that we all want to be in. But the material itself, the soul of this show is fun to work on. It is a, it is a good feeling to watch these scenes unfold. Even when you're on take 20 of something, you know, I think the crew, for the most part, enjoys the day. And I, you know, I've been on plenty of shows where you're watching people get, you know, from their navel to their the top of their head and it, you know we got to go again i mean it's just it is this show in its soul is is a pleasure because of who jim is and um you know i think we've just tried to ride that wave but yeah it's a lot of work you got to come in and work hard and if it's uh if that's if that day's job is no fun the work suffers so we we try and manage that as, as best we can well, it definitely shows. Um, it, it definitely feels that way to the viewing audience, I can say for a fact. Um, I, I have a quick question um, in the writing. Of, like, It seems like we've talked about this on the podcast a few times, that there's kind of like this dual level to the show where there's like the mysteries on the one hand, which is like fun and fantastical, and then there's also just sort of the personal where we learn like what, you know, most of the characters bond on the idea that they're kind of struggling in their lives at this moment. And you know, searching to get their Glenday back, um, is that something? That you, I have a theory. I think just solely based on the fact that uh, Peter wrote uh, the Circles episode, uh, which was one of my favorite of the season, which delved into the mysteries. Do you guys split up those things a little bit, where one of you, or I'll just say my theory being Peter does more of the mysteries and, and Jim works more on the personal, or is it just you kind of come together for everything? I mean, I don't know. Jim and I collaborate on these stories. Um, certainly, Jim's knowledge of the alchemical and his love of that world. And I would say, too, just to say again, like, I think 
both of us are way more interested in, in believers than we are in what they believe, but um, Jim is still a font of knowledge on all of that and kind of brought that to the show. Um, and so we've all kind of, we've all dived into sort of our sense of conspiracy, but without sinister, I think our version of conspiracy is from below, we say, you know, it's, um, it's a different kind of involvement and mystery. And we've always been really careful, I think, not to let the mystery start to be a page turner in the sense that we don't want anyone to get to a scene with Ernie and Bob and be like, but wait, where are the scrolls? Like that always has to be balanced in a way that we care more about the characters and their lives than we, than we start to get tantalized by some, you know, mystery box. Cause I think that would, that would for us be the end of us. I think we have to be really careful. And, you know, I mean, as far as splitting these up, absolutely. I mean, Jim, Jim is the voice of all these characters and I do my best to, to mirror what he does when it's my job to write a piece of it. But, um, you know, truly he, he is leading the way on, on the tone and feel of all these, um, characters. I, you know, I think, um, the two elements of the show, I guess the, the personal and the, the mystery or mystical are, are for me inextricably or inexistent. I, are combined. They're, they're, I don't know what the word is. They're strictly combined. I'm bad with words. The, uh, um, <laughs> the, uh, I remember when I was writing the pilot, I, I saw a painting, um, there's a painting at the Getty here in LA. It's of a alchemist. I think it's from the 16th century. Um, and it's a guy, it, it's a man living in squalor trying to make gold. And, the, although it's kind of from a genre of paintings from that era where, you know, alchemists were looked upon as cranks and charlatans and just deluded people. They were thought to be fools, but so about the painting. And so the painting was made to actually, as a warning, like, don't be like this person. And the sad man uh, living in squalor, hoping, like living, searching for this big dream. But for me, I found that I was moved by it in some way that, I think it's it's a picture of humanity, and so for me, these larger tales of conspiracy and mystery, in the end, are meaningless if they aren't connected to a real human story. So, I think what makes that incredible run and in six that Peter wrote uh, so memorable and impactful is yes, you get a tale of of, of intrigue and all these intimations of these you know this plot thickening. But it's it's the story of a single mother in Long Beach who's longing for something more to be seen in a way that the rest of the world doesn't see her, that she's capable of things that the rest of the world wouldn't think she is, and that she has a son that, um, uh, in a terrible irony, is sent off to war, uh, but in many ways by the company she worked for at the behest of, or as a test of. Um, so for me, those things are always, always combined. That philosophical element, I think, our characters are, you know, Blaze is in many ways a mouthpiece for the philosophy that under, underpins so much of it. But all our characters are kind of just struggling uh, to have some sense of meaning in this life. And I think the Lodge just is a way for us to play with that. But that's why we need both. It has to be both. It, you need the strip mall and the lodge, um, and that's our great challenge as a writers' room is to to balance those. One thing that 
we've noticed and commented on the podcast in the past is just, and I think even talking about Larry's mother and that, that being seen part, this show doesn't look like anything else on television. And when I say that, I mean the cast. It, it has an acknowledgement of the kinds of people that live in the world, uh, especially in this world that you're building. And there are all kinds of races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, but it also isn't the point either. It's just about how we go through life and make relationships. Is this, was this just sort of a, a, a magic of casting or was, was, how much thought did you give into how much the, the, the cast actually looks like it would look like walking down the streets of New York City or Long Beach or many other places in America? Um, I mean, in some ways, if you're going to do anything that has any tie to reality of what Southern California looks and feels like, that's just going to happen inevitably. Like, there's no, I don't think we deserve any credit <laughs> for, like, you know, uh, trying to make, a, you know, this place, you know, a certain way. I think it was just we are we are mirroring realities that we know. Um, I think at the same time, the one thing I will say is that uh, my my favorite, maybe my favorite quote about the show is Brent Jennings, who said Lodge is heaven for character actors. Yeah. And um, we really embrace that. We love, we love faces. We love different types of faces. Um, we have like Joe Grafasi, who plays Bert, who's the character actor of character actors, Brian Bill Murray. Um, you know, you know, we have people like um, uh, Jimmy Gonzalez and, and Gina Williams and, Davis, uh, Ree Barnes, who are one, just wonderful, you know, gorgeous faces, characters. And they're, in some ways, they're the heart of the show. They, they are, you know, we're a show of every, every man, every woman, you know. And, um, yeah, <laughs> we, uh, I, I, I love that part of the show, I guess. Yeah, we've been really helped, too, by our, our you know, our casting um, director, uh, Deb, has, never like it's it's never been like an extra request to her to find people who you know look like people and not like sort of the hollywood version of people she's been she's been really great about that and you know i mean i think um i don't know it's uh you know we've got wyatt at the center of it who you know you shave him clean and put him in a military movie and he's he looks like kurt russell man he's he, you know he is handsomer he is amazing but we've got the kind of bearded, pot-bellied, wounded version, um, and that's what fits on the show, you know? Yeah, it, it definitely, um, it, it feels that way watching it. I mean, just so many shows, sometimes it seems like if they're going to mingle races, that there has to be a um, sort of a lesson that's telegraphed all over to the audience, and um, as if the show is sort of patting itself on the back for having tackled this big issue, but it's always in a way that's sort of boxed in and acceptable. So to me, it's just sort of very refreshing to kind of see this portrait of actual people without needing to kind of go there, which ultimately in some ways cheapens it, in my opinion. And I think the show sort of does that very, very well. But it makes sense that if it's just like, uh, it's like you say, it's a reflection of actual life in the place where you're uh, telling the story. Um, but it is, I, uh, to me, it's very noticeable. I think it's pulled off very well, whether it was your intention or not. I, I, it's something I very much appreciate about the show and did um, from, the, from the very beginning. 
No, we yeah, we have all the we have the headshots of every actor who's ever been on the show up in a room in Atlanta, and it's a pleasure to walk in there. It just feels it's it's it just feels like you're in the soul of the show to see all those faces. We have a few more questions. I know we might be a little bit over time. Are you all okay, or do you have to? Oh yeah, we're fine. fine. Okay. Um, one thing that I've always been amazed at is you have so many, you know, there's so many overt and buried critiques of modern society, whether that's our addiction to technology or capitalism broadly or, you know, all those things. But you never, you know, and they're sharp and pointed and, and often, you know, a, a opinion comes through them. They can have different opinions or, you know, married of, of uh, vantage points, but they're there. How do you avoid cynicism in that? Because one thing that the show is almost devoid of cynicism, which is amazing given the variety of topics and themes that you, you touch on. I, I, I will answer for myself. I believe there is a better way to live. I think Jim mm. does too. I think it's, it's not so much an absence of cynicism as much as a hope to sort of push out there that idea. Um, I don't know. That's, I know as a writer, it's, I, it's fun to lose yourself in a character who's a little different than you. And I think for me, Dud as the kind of center of the show and his, uh, his attitude towards life, uh, is, you know, getting to write that I think is, is a joy for me because I'm, I'm a much probably more cynical person, um, than, than Dud. But I think I, it, uh, writing him challenges me and it's, 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 it's great. And I think, you know, again, just our, our cast is really the key to everything. And uh, the way Wyatt can embody everything you're talking about can move through a world that is very, uh, with a lot of uh, inequity and uh, tragedy and all these things and kind of keep that glint in his eye you know, it's, it takes a special, you know, special quality. Um, you know, and I think we, you know, Peter and I always say like, and I, I think this is true for us in some, you know, many ways, like that our show is not aspirational. Our characters aren't asking much from life. And if there, there, there's a virtue in being able to appreciate what is in front of you. And I, my sense is that it's a rare thing to see portrayed, actually. It's, it's very un-American in a way um, that, uh, you know, you know, Doug was someone I, I kind of don't, I kind of, I, I don't like when he's discussed as a slacker because uh, he's not, or a stoner because he's not. Uh, he's not the dude. He is, um, and I understand the comparisons, but he's someone who had a vocation and a job and was all in for that. He wasn't looking past it. And the story we're telling is someone whose that has been taken away. The most modest expectation of a secure life is no longer affordable, especially to someone uh, like Dud and Liz, someone at, at their point in life. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm as pissed off and cynical as anyone, but I think climbing into the characters is, I'm, I'm reminded and uh, I, in this way, that's where I find kind of a, a sense of, of hope and optimism. Yeah, I think that sometimes the description of Dud as this uh, slacker or, let's say, burnout um, is 
kind of a similar, it's like an easy uh, reach for people to kind of use to describe. It's similar to the way they say that the show doesn't have much of a plot and that kind of thing. It, it does seem like it's, uh, they're kind of, and I, I kind of agree totally too, because, um, you know, Blaze was selling, he had a dispensary where he was selling, you know, pot for people for, you know, for this or for that, you know, he still considers himself sort of like a, a doctor of some sort. And, um, you know, uh, for a show that actually mentions the selling of pot, like, you know, Dud doesn't involve himself in it at all. Or, you know, you rarely, I mean, you know, he drinks because they drink at the lodge, but it's like the burnout thing is just, I, I, it is weird because it's 2019, but it's like, oh, because he has long hair, he's a burnout, you know. You know, you know what it is? I hate to say, like, if Wyatt didn't have a beard, I don't think that, <laughs> I think that's what, what just made that inevitable. And again, I, I totally understand it. And I, and I, you know, I, I you know, as someone who loves, the Big Lebowski and the Coen Brothers, you know, that's all great. But I, I think, um, yeah, well, just a little protective of. Uh, <laughs> we were very like we were very careful with marketing because, of course, their first, you know, I would say their first attempts were, he's the guy with the surfboard, you know. And I think, and that this is, I don't blame them. And it probably would have had a bigger audience out of the gate if we'd done the full marketing of like he's kind of a dude and it's SoCal and. You know, I think we, we were very careful to try and avoid him seeming, you know, he's not naive. He is, you know, we, we play him as the fool, but it's like the mythological fool. It's not somebody who's foolish. And and I think, you know, we've been trying to avoid those traps as far as, you know, letting people know, like, this, it's not what you think. Um, I don't know. That's, uh, it's been a trick. Yeah, I'll never... It's to talk about the early marketing of the show because uh, I think you last season you ran after Better Call Saul, I believe, on AMC. Um, and I was like, "What is this show?" And I was like, "I don't know." It's just, but then I, when I went back and just like, you know, I'm going to watch this, and then I was instantly in. It wasn't any kind of like I needed five episodes or whatever. But yeah, that early marketing definitely had me kind of scratching my head, kind of especially with someone who was probably predisposed to watch whatever came on after Better Call Saul. Um, well. Yeah. No, I mean, okay. we, we joined a network that is traditionally very dark. I mean, they, you know, and, and even when they're, you know, I think Better Call Saul was probably the closest thing they had to something comedic. So that's what we followed. But, you know, it's, it's, um, I think times are changing and I'd like to believe that with the development that AMC has, there'll be other shows more like us coming out of AMC in the future not not exclusively. I mean, they will they will always have their dark side. But I think we were sort of the tip of a spear, and that you know that's been difficult because I think a lot of the AMC audience didn't know what to expect, um, and uh, you know we we don't fit yet. Yeah, hopefully it's uh, it starts a wave of new shows. So I doubt for me anyway that, that any could. I don't know. The show's been kind of magical for me. So there's so many ways in which I relate to the characters, all, a lot of them, and, and the situations and everything like that. Um, but I, I think we'd be remiss if we would be regretting it if we didn't ask you a little bit about the music and how that all came to be. Did you guys agree that it should have a really strong soundtrack? And um, Because, I mean, it, it is kind of one of the first things that stuck out to me was the music, because I, I knew I liked the show, but I knew I loved the music like from the very beginning. Um. Yeah, it it was important. Um, I definitely am a bit of a music geek, and in in particular, certain 
certain strains of kind of like, I don't know, uh, 60s psych and garage and, uh, stuff that I'm always kind of digging through. Um, so when, once we were up and running, I, you know, uh, my kind of big ask was, uh, I wanted to bring in, uh, Tom Patterson, who I've known for 20 years and he is a, a, uh, caddish man about town. Um, and he also is a music journalist and he also just knows more and loves, knows more about music and loves it more than anyone I know. And he just kind of has a grasp of the entire vernacular of like post-war music, um, in, in every facet. And, um, we, we just sensed it would be a big, as far as building the, the mood and timeless feeling. Um, so yeah, so Tom does amazing things. He digs through, finds 45s and charity shops and then later has to hire a private eye to track down the air so we can clear it. That actually happened. Um, <laughs> and, you know, he provides us all this stuff to play with that when Peter and I, you know, I have some things in mind from the very beginning and I, you know, I'll, I'll write them into the script. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, but the most fun is sitting with Peter and the test is how it makes you feel when you watch it. And, uh, the song he thought would be super cool in the moment just may not work. So having that, uh, uh, all that to play with is hugely important. And then one thing we've done that I think is fairly unusual. I don't know. I don't know of another show that does this. We've kind of have a couple of bands that we kind of use a lot. And, uh, yeah. my favorite artist, one of my favorite artists of all time is Trish Keenan of broadcast. And she is, a guiding spirit for the show and her, her death is a one that I still can't quite get over. Um, and then we have, uh, a band like the sound carriers who are an amazing psych band, um, who they were kind of broken up or they had stopped doing stuff for a few years. And Tom kind of got in touch with them. And uh, as Peter described them, they're kind of the heartbeat of the show. Um, in episode nine, you know, they did this, we asked them to do this cover of, Scott Walker's The Seventh Seal. And I mean, when I heard it, I lost my mind. It's just amazing. Um, we have a band like The Lilies, uh, Kurt Heasley, who has, you know, he's been one of my favorite for a long time. He he did a song for us. Um, uh, you know, he had this song that we, we used uh, that no one else had heard. And that's in 204. Um, so yeah, it, it is probably, I would say, as much, there's many joyful parts of the show, but getting to play around with the music is, is as much fun as possible, but it's all going toward, it's not just putting in a cool song. It's putting in a song that elevates the mood and meaning of the show. Yeah. I will say that a highlight of my career was sitting when we had to figure out the song for Liz going through the car wash. And I, mm. you know, we listened maybe to dozens uh, of possibilities and each one had a different flavor and it would, it would sync up with a moment that worked fantastic. It was just, it felt like that's where the show almost gets built in terms of its magic. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's, there's no way but to sit there and try stuff. And it's, it's really a blast. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, it, there's like, uh, you know, it definitely feels, it fills the mood of the scene usually, but then also, uh, very often I've noticed when you listen to the lyrics that they're also, it's like a double, like, even if he was just used the song, it would have fit because of the mood. But then very often the lyrics also kind of have something to do with what's going on as well. And I, I don't know, I've always been kind of floored by just how perfectly the music is. And, you know, um, sometimes like if you're, 
uh, Martin Scorsese or something like that. You can just use stone song after stone song after stone song. And of course, it's going to be awesome. <laughs> but it's really remarkable to kind of like pick these gems, you know, this needle, you know, in the haystack and kind of, and, and songs that, uh, you know, very often I'm, I'm assuming that you're introducing that song to the, your audience as well. Like, I you know, I was familiar with the Skywalk song, but obviously the Sound Carrier's version, um, I'd never heard, obviously. So, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it's it's um, it's really a remarkable aspect of the show that I think should get more credit. I mean, there's just so much to talk about, but um, certainly the music is, is is really fantastic. You know, and it should also be mentioned, just a shout out to our composer, oh, Andrew, right. Andrew Carroll, who yeah. all the moments that you don't recognize as needle drops, you know, he's found a way to just create this feeling for the show. I mean, he's, He's brought in these choral voices and these kind of haunting um, melodies, and and it's just he, you know, he sort of bolsters up what we what we get from our uh, our needle drops. He creates this world around that that um, kind of lets it all be consistent, and um, he's fantastic. Yeah, he's he's a genius. I, <laughs> we are always floored when he brings in something, and that that is actually the moment when you're like, oh, we're here, we've arrived at this is the full expression of the scene is when Andrew's cues come in. And it's, it's always a, a, a joy. Yeah, it's fantastic. I've often, I really, I've, I've been thinking, we're, we're both music heads too. So, you know, there's some of that background, but I, you know, there's some people that do the needle drops and the song places really well. And there's some people that just have like great composers and do the score, et cetera. I don't, I can't, I'm sure there are, but I can't remember in my, you know, pulling out of my ether, a show that mixes those two things as well as you all do to have such a strong kind of composer and a musical opinion from that vantage point and then the original songs, they, it really works off each other brilliantly. Well, I think you just nailed it because for us, it's Andrew doesn't just come in and, you know, give us stuff. He has a point of view, you know, he comes into it with an idea and a point of view and that's, I think that makes all the difference. You, 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 you nailed it. That's what you hear is he, he shows up to make a point. All right. We're, we, we would be, the other thing we would be deeply remiss to ask, and uh, so we're going to ask it is, you know, we've come to the end of season two. Um, like I said, people, they'll get plenty of spoiler warnings or they, they have seen the show. So they know the cliffhanger nature of the ending of season two, which is, which was a, a serious mind scramble, I'll just say. And then what about season three? You know, I think we're going to, you know, the, the, the diehards and the growing audience and the, the critical claim that you have, because the, the one awesome fan base that the show does have is all you know, America's top television critics. Do we have any, any idea about where the show is going in terms of existing in season three and, and anything you can tell us about, about what exists past the uh, the uh, dud portal drop. So those are two distinct questions. As far as what we know, whether we get a season three, to be honest, we don't know yet. And um, I would say we're holding our breath. Uh, you know, AMC is at a moment in its career where they're you know they're figuring out exactly who they are and what they want to do moving forward as a as a linear cable company in an increasingly streaming world. Um, I'll leave it at that, uh, but, you know, tell your friends to watch the last episode. I, I wouldn't hesitate if you've ever watched anything live. Just turn your televisions on at 10 o'clock on Monday. It doesn't matter. Watch it later. Um, so that is definitely, like, hanging over us. That aside, um, 
you know, we absolutely would love to do more and have, you know, uh, we, we sort of feel we're halfway through the story. Um, mm. And, you know, Jim comes out of short stories. I think we always started this with the idea of a beginning, a middle, and an end. We, we did not start it with the idea of, like, I hope we get 100 seasons because that's what television success is. Um, we want to tell a story, and, and um, you know, we're halfway through. So in an ideal situation, it would go four seasons? I think so. Um, I think there's a possibility that, you know, five is, is a possibility, but I think so is three. <laughs> yeah, who knows? It's definitely not two. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah, uh, it's hard to say, but no, I, I think, you know, I don't want to use the word art, but I think a great work of art or a, a novel or a story that is, and that it ends. Like it has to have an ending. We know what the end is, um, and we we want to get there. Um, yeah, I think we 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 are both at once. So we're so lucky to be at AMC because, like I said, they let us do what they want. But we're also understanding of the the realities of TV in this weird transition period. And um, you know, we we're. We're thrilled with kind of, I think, that the, the conversation is, is, is now happening about the show. And, um, you know, I think uh, I think there's a lot more to talk about. So let's all just keep our fingers crossed. How's that? Sounds good. We're, we're, well, were you surprised about the? Because it definitely seems like the conversation has picked up in season two. And I don't just mean that self-congratulatory because we run the podcast, but... But, you know, whether it's the, the Patton Oswalds of the world, whether it's Alan Steppenwalds of the world, you know, th- th- it definitely seemed like there, the, there's much more of the kind of a television tastemaker chattering class that has, has jumped onto the show in season two. Um, was that a surprise to you? Were you like kind of like finally guys or what? what is Because it seems like very distinct from season one. Can you talk a little bit about sort of that experience? I mean, it was a huge relief to see it. Fi- I mean, we felt very much like we were in our own echo chamber season one. Um, we knew, you know, we, we understood there was an audience out there. Um, but there, I, as you point out, I'm just repeating what you said that, you know, there didn't seem to be a lot of conversation. There wasn't yet people wanting to reach out to other people and say, Hey, let's talk about what we just saw. I think, you know, it's a great relief this year because we certainly built something that is meant for that, you know, and I, and I, and it's not the kind of like, this is us, cliffhangery, like you got to talk about it as soon as you see it necessarily, but it definitely, you know, should spur discussion and hopefully, you know, that's, that's what's begun. I think in this day and age, you know, again, with 700 shows or whatever, it's the lag between something appearing and something actually getting noticed is super long. It's way longer than it's ever been. Um, you know, I, I was saying to Jim, if somebody came to me on their knees and begs me to watch a show, it's going to take me six months to get around to seeing it. So I think we're just in a different time, um, and things take longer to bubble up through all the noise. Uh, but I hope that's where we are, and I hope it is the beginning of that conversation. Yeah, it definitely seems like through, um, you know, Internet channels, YouTube, um, endless cable networks, Netflix, uh, you know, uh, Amazon, that there's all kinds of different, you know, there's, there's just so much more sort of competition and more things out there. So many things available to watch. 
I mean, especially compared to what we sort of grew up on with television, where it was, you know, uh, a couple network shows that we all watched together. Um, it's definitely a, it's a completely different market. So, but yeah, hopefully, uh, Lodge 29 sticks out amongst them. I, I certainly think it does. I think a lot of the shows that I it turned on to from people I'm not always that excited about to be, uh, you know, well, anyway, obviously we're big fans of the show, but, um, so it sticks out to us. The one thing I'll, I'll put out into the world, because it's my my theory, is that the, no network that eventually wants to put, be able to put a show into their streaming package or license it to a streaming package wants a show that doesn't have an end. So I, fig- I figure the business of TV is moving to needing full stories beginning, middle, and end in their streaming libraries. So that, that's what I'm holding on to deeply, that they let you, that they let you all tell the story to completion. No, I think that makes a lot of sense, and I and I would imagine it is part of their calculation at this point because you know they're trying to transition into a streaming network eventually. Like I mean, just because that's the way everything's going, and at that point you're building a library and you hope you have stuff that people want to invest in. So, um, but invest their time in. So yeah, you, it makes perfect sense what you're saying. If you could call them and let them know that as well, that would be great. <laughs> Well, we're, we're ready. We're ready. You know, we're ready to activate the truth that we feel like that is part of our, maybe part of our, uh, our, uh, calling. We're hoping not to have to do it though. Anything that you want to say to, to the fandom or the listeners of the show or anything here as a, a closer, we'll give you a little bit of a platform. Oh, well, God put us on the spot. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh, we'll start with thanks for watching. Yeah. Uh, no, I think Peter and I have, you know, our head is there in the sand most of the time and, you know, we're making the show and, um, you know, in addition to whatever conversations we've been talking about, like I, uh, the one thing that I, you know, the thing I'm most proud of, I think, is uh, that the people, like we were talking before about the people who worked on the show and I think um i i just have such an, an so, so much gratitude for um you know the people i work with every day whether it's peter or uh uh nina jack or um our exec producers dan carey and uh paul giamatti and um i don't know i think yeah that that feeling of the lodge uh we really want that to carry over and so i when someone says that they want to join the lodge. That that really is that's all we're trying to do. It means a lot to us. So um, it, it really makes me happy to hear that. Yeah, it definitely seems like something we're all longing for these days. Uh, you know, like a return to uh, some group, like or maybe not all of us, but certainly Chris and I um, appreciate that kind of interaction with other humans. It's not necessarily through a screen. No, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but that simple act of, of being with other people uh, physically, like just being there, whether, you know, there's a beer in front of you or not, um, uh, it's it's sorely needed. If I have one moment on a, on a pedestal to say is we should spend more time with each other and not texting each other and everything else. I think um, if, if this if this show in some small way inspires people to do that, it's fantastic. So. Agreed. Well, 
Peter, Jim, thank you immensely for giving us an hour of your time. We're super honored to, to be able to talk to you and ask some questions and to kind of get into the deeper thinking of the show. And we're, we're super excited to, to post this interview and to, and we're, we're there, uh, and, and ready to continue to evangelizing for the show. <laughs> we're leading the charge as much as we can. Uh, you are leading the charge. This is our marketing. As you may have noticed, <laughs> this is as close to marketing as we get on this show. So. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah. We really do. Thank you. Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you so much.